All right, would you join me please in Psalm 141? Psalm 141. Follow along in your Bible or on a Bible app. The National Emergency Number Association estimates that 240 million calls are made to 911 each year. They suggest a few best practices for us whenever calling 911. First, make the call in any serious situation where a law enforcement officer, firefighter, emergency medical help is needed right away. If you're unsure of whether your situation is an emergency, call 911 anyway. Number two, if you call 911 by mistake, don't hang up the phone, stay on the line until you can tell a dispatcher there is no emergency. Number three, do your best to stay calm, answer all questions, not always easy. Number four, know the location of your emergency, that helps. And number five, teach your kids how to call 911. Now, those best practices are pretty common sense, but that doesn't stop some folks from making some spectacularly ridiculous calls each year. Dispatchers have reported the following real calls they've received. These are not made up. One person called in to report that their neighbor's sprinkler was on and it was getting their lawn wet. I know you, some of you take your lawn seriously, but that's maybe a little too seriously. Someone called in wanting to know why traffic is so bad. Someone called in to report a laundromat washing machine that didn't have enough water. Someone called in to report that a hotel parking space was too small. And finally, this is my favorite on the list. Someone called in in the early morning to report a huge fire had just broken out on the top of a hill on the east side of town. It was spreading rapidly. The caller grew more panicked, saying, it's getting bigger. The whole top of the hill is on fire now. Doesn't anybody else see this? It's lighting up the sky around it. It's huge. It was the sun rising. And uh, better luck next time, that guy. In Psalm 141, we see David great hero of ours, but he's making an emergency call to his savior. We're not sure what exactly was going on, but we can see that he feared for his very life. In fact, looking at the situation, it seems he felt like he was as good as dead. But before that final blow fell, he cried out to God and with what breath he had left in his emergency call to the Lord, he said, Lord, save me from becoming unspiritual. That was his emergency call. Surrounded by enemies who had laid traps for him, David's first and primary concern was his own heart and his relationship with God. Sure, he wanted to be rescued and he asked for that, but he wanted first to be sure that his life was in harmony with his Lord. He wanted to have a life that pleased God and honored him. Even in this grave danger, David knew that in the end, all would be made right thanks to God's holy power. And because of that, it changed the way he thought about crisis and how he reacted to suffering and difficulty. It made for an unusual 911 call here in Psalm 141, but far from being ridiculous, we can see it as wonderful and instructive and helpful to us as we follow after God. Now, we are living in a time of personal, local, national, global crisis There are serious troubles of all sorts that are pressing in on many sides. We see multitudes of people gathering for prayer at our capitals and in city centers. We see turmoil and unrest. Many of us might feel anxious and distressed this morning for one reason or another. In a time like this, how might we pray? How might we think? 
How should we think as Christians who are lovingly held in the hands of our Savior? Well, Psalm 141 shows us a way. It's a way that is not very intuitive to the human mind and not always easy for us to apply, but it's profitable to us for life and for godliness and to get where we really want to go, which is into safety and security in the will of God. It's a way that draws us nearer to God in love and trust, allowing him to do what he wants to do and conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. So our text begins just above verse one there. It says, a Psalm of David. Lord, I call on you, hurry to help me. Listen to my voice when I call on you. David just told the maker of heaven and earth to hurry up. Uh, in polite society, there really aren't many situations where you can say that someone uh, to someone, right? If you say that to your waiter this afternoon, you might get an unwanted addition to your meal. A little side sauce or something like that. You do a hurry up in your car, you might find yourself in a road rage incident. In fact, I haven't seen it, but I gather that Russell Crowe's latest movie is about how he's at a stoplight. Someone honks at him when it, the light turns green, and then he spends the rest of the movie terrorizing them and everyone that they love. So it's part of our culture, right? We understand that. If you give a little courtesy beep to the person in front of you, they might murder you. There are times, of course, when hurry up is not only acceptable, but absolutely necessary. We've already talked about calling 911, but, you know, we could ratchet that down a little bit. Maybe you don't feel like you're at the very precipice of destruction this morning. Here's kind of living your regular life, but you still have strains and pressures and difficulties that you're facing. So think about it this way, a, a less emergent sort of situation. Think of a small child trying to cross the monkey bars. I'm sort of in that phase of life with one of my little ones. They get a few rungs in and then they realize they're just not going to make it. The trip was much farther than they thought it was going to be. And they don't have the strength in themselves to either hang on or to go forward. And so they're in a real pickle. And so what do they do? They call out for mom or dad to hurry and save them. They cry out urgently, dad, come get me. And then the parent goes in there and supports them and either gets them down gently or helps them get across. If you're a Christian, remember this morning that God is your father, a loving father, a compassionate father, a a, a father who is mindful of you. He, he knows about the struggles you're facing. He knows about the difficulty ahead of you. Even the rungs that you can't see ahead of you, he, he sees. He knows that our strength is limited and our endurance is small. His eyes are on you. And he's ready to hear your calls for help. Cast your cares upon him for he cares for you, the New Testament says. And he will sustain you. He's a God who hears. You see, David said this. Uh, not out of impoliteness, of course, but he also said it knowing that God would hear him, that God would listen, that God was ready to hear that prayer. And that is a remarkable thing. Now, David's words here raise an important question for us to wrestle with. Does God listen to the prayers of unbelievers? The answer isn't quite as simple as yes or no when we look into the Bible. Obviously, God is omnipotent and omnipresent. Nothing is hidden from him. There's no corner of the universe that he can't see into. The Bible says that our thoughts are even known from afar. Everything is laid bare before his eyes, the New Testament says. And it's very clear that he will hear anyone who calls out to him for salvation and mercy. And we also see examples of people like Cornelius in the Bible. And we're told that his prayers were heard in heaven even before he was born again. 
However, there are also some significant and frightening warnings to those who are not his children. For example, Psalm 34 tells us that God turns his face against those who do evil. Proverbs 21 says that those who shut their ears to the cries of the poor will be ignored in their own time of need. In Isaiah 59, we read this. It's your sins that have cut you off from God. Because of your sins, he has turned away and will not listen anymore. That's a scary thing to read. If you're an unbeliever, if you've never been born again by repenting and putting your faith in Jesus Christ, you are in a much more dangerous and precarious situation than David was when he wrote this psalm. And when David wrote this psalm, he was pretty convinced he was about to be assassinated. But you're in way, way more trouble than he was. And the Bible would urge you to call out to God for mercy and for forgiveness for your sins, turning from those wrong things that you have done so that you can be saved and brought into God's family. We are told very clearly that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But until then, you are in a desperate position as an unbeliever and you are headed for a desperate destination at the end of your life. Verse two says this, may my prayer be set before you as incense, the raising of my hands as the evening offering. So here we have David in desperate need. We're going to learn in verse 8, he really is afraid for his life. He takes a moment to place an emergency call to God as sort of a last moment. And here's his request. God, help me to worship and to pray. You know, David was tremendously busy in life. Uh, We're busy people. Our culture is a busy culture, always doing, always filling up our schedules with all sorts of things and pursuits and, and, you know, uh, distractions and those sorts of things. Well, David was way busier than the average person that we know. He was king of a nation. He was a poet. He was an instrument builder. He was a warrior that went out to battle. He did huge amounts of administration. He planned worship services, not just worship services, but he planned the courses of the priests, how they would serve in the house of God. But here we catch a glimpse into why he was a man after God's own heart. It's such an interesting descriptor we're given of David, and it's very meaningful to us. And we look at that, we say, oh, I want that. What a way to be described. Well, we catch a glimpse of why he's described that way here. He kept his spiritual life at the forefront of his mind. It was at the top of his to-do list, his concerns list. Now, he had quite a list of concerns. Aside from regular life stuff, regular family concerns and interpersonal things going on like we all do, he had to keep the Philistines in mind. He had to keep the Ammonites in mind. He was trying to figure out how he was going to build the world's greatest temple in Jerusalem. He's putting together a catalog of worship songs for an entire nation to sing. But with all of this going on and with the threats to his life, in this emergency call, he doesn't simply want things from God. We see that his desire is to have a heart and a life that pleases God. That's an amazing uh, position of his mind and his heart. As he looked at it, this is my last call. This is my last SOS. God, I want to know how to worship and pray. To David, worship mattered and prayer mattered. They really mattered. They were dominant elements of his life. The prayers he offered were as meaningful as the prescribed incense that was burned in the tabernacle morning and evening. And the raising of his hands in surrender and worship were as significant as the sacrifice of a lamb on the altar. And you know, that's not just David's way of thinking about things. He's not just inflating his own personal habits. This is the way God looks at your worship and your prayer. Revelation 5.8, we read that in heaven there are gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. 
What an amazing idea that we get to fill those bowls with prayer. To just fill them up and fill them up and fill them up as we participate in that avenue of communication that God has given his church and given his people. That it's not just uh, some throwaway thing that we can do at the beginning of a meal. It's not just something that we do to kind of check in. I'm checking in. I'm, I'm punching my time clock, God. I'm praying so that you know that I'm here. But that we get to have this eternal heavenly interaction where we pray to the Lord who's ready to hear us, who wants to hear us. And we fill up those bowls in heaven. What about worship? Well, Jesus said in John 4 that God is looking for people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Worship matters. Prayer matters. You know, worship, when we gather together on Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights and we spend some time singing to the Lord, it's not just the, the prep time where we kind of settle in and, okay, this is what we do. It's like the opening credits of a movie, if, you know, kind of get through this. But worship really matters. It's like leading a little lamb into the temple and having it offered to God as a pleasing burnt offering to him. And God says, I'm looking for people who will worship. I'm looking for people who will sing, who will gather and magnify my name. Not just in autopilot with our minds disengaged, but that they will take part in what's happening. Uh, the singing of praises to God who is worthy of our worship. It matters. We also note here that David felt that he personally had a responsibility to God no matter what the circumstances of his life were. We don't see him saying, you know, God, you don't seem to be keeping up your end of the bargain here. I'm writing these songs. I'm doing all of this. And where, where are you when times get tough? Not at all. In fact, the opposite is true. He says, man, Lord, I, I need help to be more spiritual no matter what was going on. He felt that personal responsibility. And so whether in smooth sailing or shipwrecked at sea, you and I are called to live in the presence of God, worshiping him, not just in some theoretical abstract way, but actually worshiping, actually praying, actually pouring out our hearts and our lives in praise to him. Verse three says, Lord, set up a guard for my mouth and keep watch at the door of my lips. David's first request is this, God help me worship. His second request is God help me control my tongue. He felt his tongue needed to be leashed and guarded. You know, the Bible speaks a lot to us about the tongue. It's the most powerful muscle in your body. It can save a life or set the whole world on fire. God directs us about what kinds of words we use and the motivation behind them. Why does it matter so much? It's just words. Well, for one thing, the Proverbs explain that life and death are in the power of the tongue. But also, as Christians... We are appointed as ambassadors for Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is in heaven. And now you are here to represent him to a lost and dying world. To a world that oftentimes does not understand Jesus Christ or even know who he is. And the Lord has left us here to be his representatives, to be ambassadors for him. You carry out actions for him as part of his body. You're connected to others as part of the body here on the earth. And so this is an important understanding that we need to have, that I live as an ambassador for Jesus Christ. Now, imagine there being an ambassador sent out by his president or his king in wartime to go and negotiate peace, right? But this ambassador is drunk as a skunk. 
And he is not going to filter anything that he says. And he's just going to kind of talk the way somebody who's uh, really, really drunk talks. Do you really want that person going to the table to start negotiating terms with the, with the other side of the battle? Of course not. You know, Boris Yeltsin, the late Boris Yeltsin, was famous for inebriation. At one point, you can actually look this up, during the Clinton administration, he called our president... Okay, now let's, let's pause. Let's think about, you know, just the strain between, you know, Russia and America and all this. So Boris Yeltsin calls the president of the United States drunk and he asked Bill to set up a secret meeting on a submarine. Do you want that guy to have like the nuke codes to have his finger on the button? Of course you don't. We can laugh about it now, but that could have been a real problem. And the truth is our lips need guarding. Our physical lips as well as our digital ones. You may have some truth you want to share, but if it is done without love, you might as well be a clanging symbol. It's valueless and even detrimental to the cause of Christ to be lashing people with your words and not speaking in love and compassion and the kind of mercy that God shows sinners like us. Why tell it like it is? Jesus Christ told you who you were like it is, and he did so with compassion and grace and mercy. He did so not to abuse you, but to reconcile you to himself so that he could give you life more abundantly. And now he says, and now you turn around and go do the same thing, not just to your friends, not just to your family, but to your enemies. We're not to go out and lash people and attack them. We're to go out and speak the truth in love. Verse four says this, do not let my heart turn to any evil thing or perform wicked acts with evildoers. Do not let me feast on their delicacies. David started thinking about the acts of worship, then his words, and now he delves deeper into himself and takes a look at his very heart. He understood that it is from the heart that words are formed, that actions are taken, that desires are unleashed in a life. And he also understood that just because you're being offered something sumptuous and desirable, it looks so good to eat, that doesn't mean that it is a good thing. Who's it being offered by? In this case, it's being offered by an enemy. So imagine your favorite treat, your favorite dessert. I don't know if you're a pie person, ice cream, candy, cake, whatever. Imagine your favorite guilty pleasure that you want to, you know, nosh on on your cheat day. And it's being offered to you by your significant other or by someone in your family who you love. No problem, right? Uh, Now imagine it's being offered to you by someone who is known for poisoning people and killing them right? Some sort of, you know, Unabomber style person who didn't send letter bombs, but sent poison cake to people. Would you, if you knew that, would you say, oh, well, hey, it's chocolate mousse. I got to do what I got to do. I'll die doing what I love. Of course not. But just because it looks good doesn't mean it is good. And David took a look at this and he says, yeah, this, this delicacy, these, you know, delectable, sumptuous things that he's talking about in, in the spiritual realm, he's talking about these sinful temptations. He says, these are not being offered by a friend. They're being offered by the enemy. So keep me from poisoning myself with them. And so sin may be pleasurable for a time or an easy road to take at the moment, but it's going to bring forth death. It's poison, death in the heart, death in the life, death in your relationships, Death and your usefulness in the hands of God. Verse 5 says, let the righteous one strike me. It is an act of faithful love. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let me not refuse it. Even now my prayer is against the evil acts of the wicked. So discipline and rebuke in the spiritual life, they're not fun things. They're no fun to give. They're no fun to receive. But David here, remember, he has God's perspective on things in this situation of his life. And looking at the correction that he might receive, 
He invited it because he saw it as an act of loving medicinal correction to get him back in place, to sort of set the broken bone, as it were. God does not want his people to feel ashamed and condemned when they make a mistake or when they give in to temptation. We're told there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, but neither does God just say, well, it's not a big deal. It's okay that you've gone off course here. It's okay that you've turned away from what I've told you to do because I don't want you to feel bad about yourself. So as long as it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. That's not how God feels at all. When we make a step away from God or when we take a look at something he tells us to do in his word or some way the Holy Spirit is leading us and we say, no thanks, I'm going to go this way over here. Uh, God doesn't condemn us for that, but he says, we need to correct this. Let's get you back on track. Let's get you back on the path that I've carved out for you. Let's make right what is going wrong here. Because not only does he want to correct us to keep us in line with how he's leading, he also wants to fortify us and prepare us as he continues to conform us into the image of his son. Here's one way to think about, you know, spiritual discipline and correction. If you wanted to become a boxer, you're going to have to do a lot of training and preparing in a lot of different ways. Mental preparation, dietary preparation, muscle training, all sorts of things, cardio, endurance, all this kind of stuff, right? But at some point, you're also going to have to get into a ring and spar with somebody who's going to hit you, right? No one says, okay, I'm ready to fight the champ. Have you ever sparred with anyone? No. Have you ever boxed anyone? No. But I lifted weights for like 10 years and I ate all the right stuff and I watched a bunch of boxing films and, you know, I've got the mental game. No, you have to get in the ring and you're going to have to spar. And in that process, poor form and bad habits are going to get corrected real quick, right? If you don't have your hands up, you're going to get punched in the face. And that's going to correct that misstep of yours. If you're not paying attention to that foe in front of you, you're going to get hit. Now, if you're sparring with someone, when that happens... Your partner isn't trying to hurt you. We all understand that. They're trying to help you, to teach you how to keep your hands up, to teach you to prepare for the real blows that will be coming from the champ someday. Now, listen, don't get me wrong. God doesn't ever abuse us or slap us around or anything like that. But what I'm saying is David here in verse five says, man, getting rebuked is like getting hit in the face. But With a godly mindset, he was able to keep that in perspective and to see how beneficial and necessary it really was for the spiritual life. And David was a man who experienced some real rebukes in his time. Rebukes that stung, that were public, that would have felt like a heavy blow. Whether it was the time he took his uh, carnal census of Israel or the time that he killed Uriah and stole his wife, he took some serious correction from God who would send his man to say, hey, go in and correct David. And those felt like a blow to him. But it was an important part of David's development in his spiritual life. And it wasn't just for him. This is something that we are called to receive and participate in. Here's a New Testament verse, a New Testament command for Christians. Galatians 6.1. Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin... You who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path and be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. And so it's not easy to rebuke fellow Christians. It's not something we delight in. 
It wouldn't have been easy to rebuke King David, but thank God for those who did, right? We are so thankful for the Nathan that went to David and said, you're the man, you're in sin, get yourself right before your entire life and the entire kingdom is ruined. It was in those moments of correction that brought David back from the brink of disaster. And we're thankful for them as readers of the Bible. And David was thankful for them as the individual who received them. Because David would rather have discipline than deterioration in his spiritual life. Hebrews says this, no discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. But afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living. That's what we want as Christians, right? And this is part of the process. Verse 6 says, when their rulers will be thrown off the sides of a cliff, the people will listen to my words for they are pleasing. Scholars and linguists will point out that the Hebrew in this section of the psalm is very challenging. There's really not much consensus about how exactly verses 6 and 7 should be rendered or who even is speaking at some points. But what we can see is that David was able to look beyond his present crisis and remember what was for sure coming in the future. It was a sure thing that he was talking about that were going to come beyond his days, beyond his danger, beyond this emergency he was in the middle of. One day, God's good will totally triumph over evil once and for all. And we can be of good cheer right now, no matter what's going on, because Jesus Christ has overcome the world. He has conquered sin and death. Now, those enemies still come against us, still tempt us, still pressure us, those sorts of things. But there is a day coming when all will be made right and those who rejected God will be repaid for their choices. In your Bible, you may see a note that the words can read this way. Their judges will fall into the hands of the rock. That rock is Christ. And as a rock, he invites anyone who is willing to anchor themselves to him and be saved from the coming destruction of his wrath. But all others who refuse will be crushed by the rock, crushed in judgment. This ultimate fate of the wicked is just and it is good, but we should not be excited that the lost will suffer such a fate. Listen, the Bible says that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, and therefore, as God's people, we shouldn't either. This comes back to guarding our tongues. It's easy and popular for us to speak about our hatred of certain leaders or prominent people because of their wickedness, because they won't do the right thing. It's true that judgment is coming, but... That truth should not propel us towards gloating. It should propel us toward evangelism. Gore Vidal, the famous author, once wrote this. The four most beautiful words in our common language are, I told you so. (laughs) Yikes. Have him at Thanksgiving, right? That's never to be our feeling. Now, that's the human heart having its way. That's the human heart saying, oh, yeah, I am so glad that person got theirs. Because our human hearts are bent towards hatred and are bent towards vengeance and revenge and those sorts of things. It's natural for us to feel what Mr. Vidal said there. But it's not right. Because we've been given a new heart. The heart of Jesus Christ. A new mind. A new way of looking at things. A new way of looking at people. And when God looks at people, he doesn't say, oh, I can't wait till you get yours. Jesus Christ looked out from the cross and he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. People who are spitting on him and blaspheming him, who had torn him open and who were reviling him, who were murdering him for doing nothing wrong. And he said, I love those people. And he looks into the blackness of my heart and your heart and he says, 
Oh, I, I'll give myself so that that person does not have to get what they deserve. And then, having saved us, he says, guess what? Now you get to act like I act. Not just on Sundays, but all the time. Not just in person, but on Facebook too. You get to do that. You get to treat people, not like Gore Vidal, but like Jesus Christ. As Christians, the four most beautiful words we might be able to say to someone is, Jesus can save you. And that you in that sentence is, doesn't matter if it's a friend or an enemy or a family member or a neighbor or somebody you used to know or a stranger on the street, a prince or a pauper. Doesn't matter if they're a terrorist or a, a charity worker. God loves them all. And he loves them all through us, through our words and through our actions. Think of the little servant girl in 2 Kings 5. Such an amazing story. She was stolen from her home in Israel. She was trafficked into slavery, into the commander of the Aramean army. His name was Naaman. He was the chief enemy of God's people. He went around butchering God's people. That was his job. He was also a leper. And that little girl in that house, stolen from her home, maybe he had even murdered her own parents, we're not told. Looking on that man who had done all of this and was enslaving her, whose skin was falling off. He's a disgusting human being, inside and outside, pagan idolater. We can't really get a, a better picture of, of just the grossness of sin than looking at Naaman in 2 Kings chapter 5. And what happens? What did she say? She had such grace and compassion that she told him a secret that would change his life forever. He had a sickness that no one could heal. No one, no one, no one. And she said, my God could heal you of your leprosy. The text says that she said, I wish my master would go see the prophet so that he could be healed. That is grace. That's the love of Christ. That's what we're called to. She didn't have the indwelling Holy Spirit, but she knew the God of Israel. And she knew that one day all would be made right. And despite all of her suffering and despite all that had happened to her, her heart was full of grace and compassion for that very man. She told him the secret that he might have new life. And it, as it turns out, not only new life in the body, but new life in the spirit as he turns to become a believer in the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Bible. Verse seven says, as when one plows and breaks up the soil, turning up the rocks, so our bones have been scattered at the mouth of Sheol. Some translators believe this is a quote from the conquered unbelievers in the end. Others take it as David's emotional feeling at the time of the writing. There's a devotional thought for us either way. If you're not a Christian, this psalm does reveal that there is a day of reckoning coming. One of the ways the Bible describes God's day of judgment is of him reaping the earth. And it's explained that if you will not accept Christ as Savior, then you will be loaded like a cluster of grapes into the winepress of God's wrath, and you will die in your sins, and you will suffer the eternal penalty for them. The wages of sin is death, not just a one-time death, but you will die eternally, separated from God, separated from all of your loved ones, separated from all good in the lake of fire. You will be devoured by the grave. That's what Sheol means. And no one can save you except Jesus Christ. But here's the good news. He's ready to save you. He wants to save you. He chose to die so that you could be saved. And if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's as simple as that because Jesus Christ did all the work for you. If you confess with your lips and believe in your heart, you will be saved. He will hear you and he'll change your life forever. But what if it was David speaking in verse 7? He was feeling this way. 
that his life was a, a bunch of ruin, bones in the dirt. David was certainly no stranger to hard times or difficulty or suffering. This image of rocks and bones reminds us of a couple important truths that concern God's children. First, no matter what happens, death has no claim on you if you're a Christian. No claim on you. It has nothing to do with you anymore. It is a passageway for you to move from this life into eternity. You may suffer, you may die physically, but you will be made alive again because Jesus rose, we will rise. It is a sure promise. Second, you may feel like your life is a rock in the dirt right now. As if you're living out that scene in The Great Pumpkin where Charlie Brown goes to house after house and instead of getting candy, he just gets rocks in his pillowcase. Don't be a neighbor like that, by the way. They're just giving him rocks all the time. Poor Charlie Brown. Maybe you feel that way. Listen, the Bible explains you're not a worthless rock in the dirt. You are a precious child of God. God saw you from before the foundations of the earth, the Bible says. The Bible says that God knit you together fiber by fiber, molecule by molecule in your mother's womb. We all know if you buy certain types of products, instruments or car, different things, the one that's handmade is going to be worth a lot more than the one that's machine made on the assembly line, right? You're handmade. Handmade by the creator of heaven and earth who knit you together in your mother's womb. You saw every day of your life from before the foundation of the earth and said, I love, I love that person. Let me carve a path through time for them to walk on, to have a life and that more abundantly. You're planted like a tree, not like a rock in the dirt, a tree which grows and brings forth fruit. You are of great eternal value in the eyes of the creator. He will not waste your life if you submit to him and go his way. Verse eight says, but my eyes look to you, Lord, my Lord. I seek refuge in you. Do not let me die. In all circumstances, not least in times of fear and hurt, we must look to the Lord. Notice, David doesn't just speak abstractly or generically. He calls him my Lord. Is he your Lord? What does it mean to make him yours? It means you have made him your refuge. You know, God is not just some sort of cosmic underwriter that approves your insurance plan or funds a heavenly mortgage. He's the loving master. If someone is your master, that means you live in his household. You live in his presence. Your life is wrapped up in his life. This master, we're told in the Psalms, surrounds us with a shield of love. He gives shelter in his household. Not only shelter, but his refuge is a place of joy and of help, of growth and refreshment and fellowship with others who he has also saved. David said he would seek refuge in God. And what a promise given to all that if we seek him, we will find him. He won't forget to open the door for you. He won't forget that you were knocking. You ever been placed on hold and they never come back? God doesn't do that when we call out to him. David here gets to the brass tacks of his request. God, don't let me die. This was a real concern for David at many points in his life that he was going to be murdered or assassinated. I would remind us in the New Testament since that spiritual death is just as concerning as physical death. And I don't mean just spiritual death for the unbeliever. When you're talking to God's people here, we're not talking about losing your salvation and going to hell. That's all been decided at the cross. But that spiritual deadness that can happen to Christians. What did Jesus say to his beloved children in Sardis? He said, you have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. And you need to do something about it. There are many things that should concern us right now in life. But staying spiritually vibrant is a, and in our first love should always be top of the list. Verse 9, protect me from the trap they have set for me. 
and from the snares of evildoers. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by safely. There are all sorts of snares laid out for God's people, snares of temptation and oppression, of bitterness, of deception. These snares may be menacing, but we don't need to be afraid. The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that we need not be outwitted by our enemy, the devil, because we can clearly study what he does. See the traps right where they're at. How do we do that? By paying attention to the scriptures and applying them to our lives. We are protected from snares by letting the mind of Christ be in us, giving us a proper perspective on our situations and on our lives. We're protected from snares by being led by the Holy Spirit. By having this proper perspective and submission to the Lord, that will help us avoid the snares that we have a tendency to fall into, even God's people. Snares like getting mad at God when we suffer. Snares of calling good evil and evil good. There are a lot of people out there right now who call themselves Christians but are making it a point to call good evil and evil good. They've fallen into that snare and they didn't need to. Instead, like David, we can move through life in confident trust that the Lord is not only with us, but he is doing a great work in our lives while I pass by safely. That closing image begs the question, where are you headed? David was struggling, but he could continue day by day in the knowledge that he was not alone. He was not abandoned. He was moving through life with a God who cared for him. Even in a time of personal emergency, he was able to keep his focus and his thoughts on his Lord and how he could live a life worthy of the God who had redeemed him. So where are you headed? You're passing by through life. Where are you going? If you're not a Christian, the Bible explains that you're headed towards a Christless eternity in hell forever and ever. But you don't have to end up there. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He's made a way. That's a choice you're going to have to make yourself. No one can make it for you. But are you a child of God here today? You know where you're headed ultimately in the end. The road before you may take you through many mountain ranges, storms and dark valleys. Might be a lot of rungs on that monkey bar that you don't think you can make it all the way across, but God is faithful and he is with you as you pass by. Don't take any byways of bitterness or lovelessness or laxness. Go with God, go his way, keeping pace with his leading in the joyful refuge of your relationship with him, calling out to him and allowing him to do all that he wants to do in your life as you pray and worship and walk with him wherever he goes. Let's pray.